Welcome to the To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so we continue to dive in Ezekiel and First Timothy uh, and the wonderful image rich and often confusing world of Ezekiel. And um, I'll include a link uh, in sort of the show notes this week to uh, what is a map of uh, Solomon's temple because uh, Ezekiel is going to have these sort of moments where um, you do kind of take a journey through the temple and things like that. And so um, kind of being able to know and have a layout of the direction you're facing and what, what some sort of, and we'll talk through some of that today, but um, I think it's sometimes helpful. And uh, remember uh, just a couple chapters ago, like one of the main accusations that uh, God has spoken through Ezekiel is that like they have, they've been practicing what is essentially state sanctioned idolatry. Like the leaders, mm. the, the governmental leaders, the, 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 the people in charge have, have practiced idolatry in a way that has involved invoked the whole nation to do so. And so uh, Ezekiel is, has a sort of vision where he's brought from from uh, captivity to the temple and shown uh, what is really going on back in Jerusalem. Because remember, in history, Ezekiel is likely part of the original crowd um, with sort of the first wave of the Babylonians coming and attacking. Ezekiel has been taken into captivity. Babylon set up a kind of puppet king uh, or a puppet ruler, puppet prince, uh, and has allowed a, a chunk of uh, the Israelites to stay. Um, and we're sort of in that in-between time. Um, and so God's showing this crowd. And and I, I mean, just to make the comment on, on what I think Ezekiel is ultimately communicating, you have a whole crowd in Babylon who is probably sort of questioning, right, are, are we being punished? Are we uh, the ones who um, are, are experiencing the judgment? And those that got to stay are um, those who uh, God has found favor in and they're the obedient ones or not. And I think Ezekiel's been given this vision to, to say, look, those that are still in Jerusalem are not okay. And so that's what we see. We see this collection of leaders and uh, Ezekiel's brought back and, and they have unclean things carved into the wall. They're burning incense to them. There's women worshiping the Babylonian fertility God back in Jerusalem, like all this kind of stuff to point out that those who are left behind are, are doing awful things. Uh, there's an Asherah sculpture basically in the temple, all this kind of stuff. And not only that, but by the end of uh, kind of chapter eight, the, the main symbol is you have this, this crowd and, and they ha- they're standing right in front of the altar of God. So they've got their backs to the altar of God facing East facing the sun and they're worshiping the sun. And, and so the, the symbolism is Israel has, has turned their back on Yahweh. And God has found it like, like the, the, the stink and the, the stick in front of the nose is sort of like, it stinks like feces. Like that's what it is to God, what they're doing back in Jerusalem. Yeah. And I think there's something too, for us to remember about how important postures are in so many other religions. We don't necessarily practice them in today in our modern Western form of Christianity in the same way, but we get lots of imagery around postures of worship, which is another indicator of just how vile these abominations are that are committed against God in his temple. But I think the other thing it shows us is that God's mercy is even greater to those who understand how great their sin is. And so God allowing Ezekiel and Israel to see and understand how worthy of judgment they are, that that they are bringing this upon themselves, it's going to make the mercy and pardon that God shows to them and to us through Christ even sweeter. So the greater we understand the full extent of our sin, the greater the grace and mercy of God is to us. Yeah. And speaking of pardon, sin versus judgment, I mean, in the, the chapter nine, it's very much that it's almost like Ezekiel's uh, Passover moment. And there's these six 
angels plus one who has this kind of writing thing. And, um, and ultimately there's, there's a mark that's given to those who are faithful, basically the people who have grieved over the idolatry of Israel and those who will experience judgment and, and those who have the mark will be passed over. And those who don't, uh, will experience judgment. And, uh, the mark itself is the word Tav, which is an X. It's like they're marked with the cross. Um, and so, um, but we begin to see sort of the, the little bit of the pictures of starting of God moving down, uh, moving out. He kind of steps down from, under the cherubs. And, um, and so, yeah, we, we start seeing that process even in chapter nine. So as we see these angels carry out the execution of the unfaithful, this is a good reminder for us that grace is not just looking the other way or sweeping certain practices or behaviors under the rug, but grace is also full judgment against sin. And of course, we know that God's grace is also that that full judgment was poured out on his son instead of us. So again, as we think and like really take in this visceral almost experience of the judgment of God, we can look to Jesus Christ and understand more what it meant for him when he was on the cross. And so, yeah, so Ezekiel still having this vision of God um, kind of leaving. So essentially two things happen into chapter 10. We find uh, these coals that end up getting kind of thrown over all of Israel to sort of um, burning this sort of judgment that happens. And then second, secondarily, the, the further departure of God from the temple and sort of uh, at the end of chapter 10, he's now at the East Gate. Uh, so um, all this sort of stuff's happening. There's a lot of language that's similar to chapter one. There's almost whole sections that are straight from chapter one. So once again, Jesus, uh, Ezekiel's having this picture of God on his throne, uh, but God is on the move. I think this this seems to be happening. Real, I feel like I'm watching all of this play out of the glory departing the temple. I feel like I'm watching it play out in slow motion. And this could be slowing it down so that we understand the gravity of what this represents to Israel, the people who believe that their God dwells in this temple, or it could represent, you know, God giving his people multiple times to repent. We don't really know, but I, it's worth noting of how slowly this seems to happen as we read through. Yeah. And, and we're told that there's people there in Israel, particularly these princes, these probably rulers, these governmental officials. And they're essentially like, look, like we're like the meat and the stew. Like we're, we're the best parts of the sea. We're the ones worthwhile to save. And, um, but they're likely this group that's put there, this sort of puppet governance. And, um, and, and so God condemns them. So he's like, look, you were supposed to be like a kingdom of priests, but, you, but you're acting, you're acting just like all the other nations. There's nothing really special around you about you, which will uh, be a, a theme that, that Ezekiel will hit on a few more times. And, um, and so he says, Ezekiel, you need to prophesy against these folks. And Ezekiel starts prophesying and then somebody dies and Ezekiel starts freaking out a little bit. Cause I think he, he's like, all right, if I keep, if I keep prophesying about, your judgment like is even the remnant going to get destroyed god are you going to go the full way like please please let me know i I don't want the remnant to be destroyed which is which is kind of a great cliffhanger that this chapter ends on with ezekiel saying god are you going to make a full end of the remnant of israel because he has seen with his eyes even through these visions that no one is good not one no one is deserving of deliverance or of being a remnant and he's not sure what his god is going to do and then god just like moves us into this chapter 11 section yeah and i think this is where sort of that that play out of of god's judgment on the remnant versus Jerusalem kind of gets played out because there, there are those that are left in Israel and they sort of have these av- attitudes of those exiles deserved it. We're the obedient ones that's been left behind with the temple and everything else. Um, and, and, and God 
speaking to Ezekiel's like, look, they're, they've got it wrong. Like they're thinking of themselves as a chosen. They're making assumptions about how I look at them, but, but they've done nothing in terms of repentance. And so I think God's saying, no, like the, the remnant are those who are being preserved ultimately in Babylon. And, and he just showed Ezekiel how, how many left in Jerusalem are still worshiping these idols. They're, they're, they're doing all sorts of idolatry and God's saying, look, judgment is coming on these people that have been left back in Israel. Um, but those who are in exile, exile that he will remove all the detestable things and abominations when they return. He will give them one heart and this new spirit, remove their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. All these things that um, New Testament writers really pick up on. Uh, you have Acts do it. You have Paul do it. Um, the, the sort of uh, connection of what does it look like now to, to be um, sort of these new covenant people with a, with a new heart, which is what Israel always needed. And so by the end of the chapter, though, we see the glory of the Lord kind of leave the temple and east, the glory of the Lord's at Mount Olives, kind of across in the east and um, the sort of symbolism of God going eastward, which is actually where Ezekiel and company are. Yeah. So this great response to Ezekiel's outcry is, listen, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new flesh, and there's going to be transformation. And this remnant is going to change from the inside out. And so we see the fulfillment of that through the work of Christ and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yep. And so um, we end up what what feels like uh, Ezekiel sort of coming back to um, out of his vision and back to communicating with the folks in exile. And um and we're going to deal with some of the objections, but first, uh, once again, a sign act uh, that we get Ezekiel have. And so during the daytime, Ezekiel has to like pack a bag with just the essentials and at night act out the sort of like escape, like he's got to cut a hole in the wall as if he's trying to make a getaway. He can't just leave through his front door and, and escape with his luggage and uh, flee in the dead of night. And so uh, most scholars will connect this and, and there's a little bit of play out to Ezekiel explaining it a little bit, um, or God explaining to Ezekiel that um, it's likely related to Zedekiah, who is that puppet king over Israel right now, and with this new wave of the Babylonians coming in, Zedekiah is going to try to flee, uh, and ultimately he's going to get caught. He's going to have his eyes gouged out, uh, and and he's going to be blinded. Which we also see language of that person um, who who is the escapee is is going to be taken to Babylon, but yet he will not see in the land. And so um, it's likely the picture here. And then Ezekiel has to act like he's he's got food, but he's anxious and panicked. He doesn't have a lot of it. And once again, Jerusalem gets sieged, which means like you're just surrounded on all sides and starved out uh, so that you give up. And so um, Ezekiel once again gets to act this stuff out. And lastly, the objections start coming and uh, objections like all these prophecies, like they're not going to come to pass. And, and, and those kind of questions, like we've, we've heard threats before and nothing's really come of them. And, and God's like, okay, but I'm striking you down and, and Ezekiel, you need to tell them that. And this all will come to pass. Yeah, we kind of see this going, I would say, like in cycles as we read Ezekiel and lots of the prophets are cyclical in what they write about. But we see this judgment's coming, this promise of restoration, which we just got on. And so we get back again to this idea of this judgment coming to those who are in Judah. And there's other objections, people saying, oh, we'll be okay. There's, there's prophets telling people like, look, you'll be fine. There'll be peace. But they're, but they're preaching a false security. And, and what you ultimately need to do is repent. And, and they're saying things in the name of God, but, but even God's like, but, but they, they haven't seen anything. I haven't talked to them. They're not my spokespeople. They might use my name, but, but they have not had any sort of encounter with me. And so uh, God points that out. And then there's some condemnation of the female prophets who seem to be 
doing some sort of witchcraft or magic as well. Um, but it's, it's so fascinating because I, I think we still have so much of this, this in mm-hmm. our day that this chapter makes clear that this has been going on for a long time, that there's people who in the name of Christ will, will speak things that are not true of God. And, and God essentially says to them like, look, they've seen nothing. They're not my spokespeople. Like they may be sincere in what they think they're saying. They may invoke my name, but, but it's not true. It's, it's false. And this is why we need scripture yet again to validate truth. And we need to, you need to read and seek understanding in community of what scripture truly says. So you can discern whether someone who has climbed themselves a Christian is speaking truth or they're speaking things that aren't true about God or his word or his son. And then we hear about elders coming to Ezekiel, trying to get a word from God, but God points out like, look, these, these people are trying to come to you with the word of God, but in their hearts, there's just idolatry like uh, that, that that's what's going on. And this chapter includes uh, callbacks once again to Leviticus 26, which is sort of what happens to Israel if they commit adultery or sort of uh, multiple uh, tie-ins in this chapter. But uh, once again, like this is something that uh, gosh, we, we still experienced in our day people that come and say, I-, I want a word from the Lord. Uh, and, and I'm coming to hear that, but yet still just, function with idolatry in our hearts and maybe we go to church week in and week out and worship one thing all week and then come on Sundays hoping to hear from the Lord and um, and and Yahweh's not content with that. There's a line in that section that says the people had taken their idols into their hearts. It feels like a stern warning for all generations. I think this is the thing about idolatry is we can't keep it separate from us. And we always end up taking it into our hearts, even if we don't plan to. And it becomes really hard for us to stop worshiping those things. And we become what we worship. So reflect on your life or even, you know, I mean, not in a, like, I guess a judgmental way, but consider those who you've seen who have these other idols and how they've become that thing that they worship and ask the Lord to reveal to you if there are any of those idols that you're trying to take into your heart or uh, strongholds in your own life. Yeah, and then we see God address something that has happened through Abraham and Moses where um, at least one individual righteous person will plead for the people and maybe the people are spared because there's at least one righteous. I mean, Abraham certainly does this. Of There's at least 10 righteous people in the city. Will you spare? And and God has laid out in, this, in chapter 14 to say, like, look, I don't care how many righteous people are in the city. Like, the wicked are going to be punished. And he still promises that there'll be some that are spared. They'll be brought out of exile. But he's like, look, even if Noah, who was like the righteous man or Job, who proves to be righteous in the story of Job, which we'll certainly read eventually. And like, like even if they were there, like my, the wicked are still not going to be spared for the sake of the righteous. The wicked will be punished in this situation. I'm not going to relent from that. Um, and there's still, once again, that promise that, that some will, will be drawn out. The righteous will be drawn out and there'll be exiles and there'll be another wave of them. And they'll end up proving all this. And God will say, they'll, they'll prove all the stuff I've told Ezekiel to say, they'll prove it all was true. Yeah. And then, uh, and then we get sort of a pivot to a conversation around this sort of useless vine um, that that compares Israel to this vine, but it's not this fruitful vine. It's not a great vine. It's this wild vine, which really has no use. Wild vines don't tend to bear fruit because the fruit ends up on the ground. Um, and and that's sort of the analogy here. Like even even said like you can't even make like a peg out of it. Like all that you can possibly do with it is burn it. And so Israel's like that, this wild vine that's useless other than for burning. And, and even if you burn a, li- a little bit and then you take it out, 
and you realize there's still more to be burned, you just have to throw it back in the fire. And sort of, I think that's the picture here of the first wave of the Babylonian thing was the first burn. And, and all we have found is it's not done yet. And we just have to throw it back into the fire. And that's what God's going to do with Israel in this process. And as you read about, which you'll read about a few more times in Ezekiel, and we've read in the Old Testament and other places, this idea of a vine, I'd encourage you to jump and think about John 15 as well, where Jesus talks about himself as the true vine. And that that can have a lot of meaning to us when we don't understand the context, but it's even more powerful to read about Jesus as a true vine when we read and learn about vine imagery and the the understanding uh, Old Testament Jewish people had of the vine in Scripture. And then uh, let's jump to 1 Timothy 2. So we just finished up one chapter where Paul sort of finished uh, in chapter 1 that, that Timothy needs to wage this good fight or fight the good fight, wage good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. And and so then we start getting, I think, instructions in that direction. So instruct everyone to pray, like pray for everyone and particularly pray for leaders that, that you all might live ultimately in peace. And, 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 and the statement then of God doesn't desire that anyone would perish or that all would be saved. And so uh, just to just to say really quickly, uh, often theologians divide up uh, what we call uh, there's a, there's a will of desire and a will of decree that that God has these things that He desires, uh, such as here, like He desires that all would be saved, but. Um, uh, but at the same time, he has a will of decree, like God is sovereign and he says things are going to pass and they do come to pass. And so, um, the same way, I think, um, in an imperfect metaphor, like I have desires for my children to ultimately obey me all the time, but I know, and I can even predict that they're disobedient, that they're going to be disobedient. I'm going to have to teach them a lesson with discipline. It's going to come with it and stuff like that. And, and I think God has this, the same thing, but even more magnified, like, um, that, that he has a, a, a will of, of desire. He has probably a desire that Adam and company never ultimately disobeyed him, but also a, a will of decree that through the glory of his son, before the foundations of the world, that God's going to bring about uh, salvation through the, the glory of his son and what his son's going to do. And so both those things are true. So sometimes we hear about God's desires for certain things, but we know that those things haven't come to pass. And it kind of speaks to those two wills. Yeah. And then this also addresses one of um, an often misunderstood passage in scripture around the role of women within the church. Yeah. And, and yeah, we start getting instructions around men and women and what they're supposed to do. So the men instructions to, to, to kind of pray to God, that sort of this picture of humble submitting yourselves to prayer. And I really like Eugene's sort of follow up. And, and he says like, I want women to get there with the this sort of humility picture too. And not, not primping before a mirror, chasing the latest fashions, but doing something beautiful for God and becoming beautiful doing it. I, I kind of love that translation, but then we get instructions around women and learning and, and, and what it looks like maybe in, in sort of the gathered church. And, um, and there's two ways certainly to look at it, and some of those are more negative than others. But but one of the things is that women are instructed to get theological training, which would have been extremely rare. Uh, education would often not exist, certainly co-ed, but even more um, to encourage women in general to, to, to be educated, to dive, to sit under teaching, to learn. Um, and so the instruction there is for women to be theologically developed, which is something I think sometimes we still struggle with uh, in church, that sometimes the world of systematics and stuff like that, we, we tailor towards men and don't don't pursue that enough in women's ministry and the instruction for Paul is we should we should develop women and men in their theological development and and then um, Paul starts 
in what is a, probably a culture, particularly in Ephesus with Artemis worship and other things, um, women had high platforms in certain places in the city. And I think Paul might be tempering some of that to say like, look, like let, let's start thinking about Adam and Eve. And he, he actually refers to sort of creation order. Um, and, and not only that, but, but Eve and the fall and all this kind of stuff to, to go, okay, like Eve, even woven into creation, there's, an authority Adam had that's different than Eve's and a role that Adam has that's, that's different than Eve's. And, and, and Paul starts playing that out and Eve, Eve has a role with, with childbearing and what that may ultimately produce. And, and Adam has this role. And I think as a letter goes, that sort of gets unpacked that much more because we start hearing about households and, and, and fathers and mothers and stuff like that. And so, um, Yes. Is it a totally clean, here's exactly how women and men leadership works in the church? No. And, and, and I want to be clear, like sometimes when people say the Bible's clear that, that this is how it works, like it just isn't like, these are some of your proof texts and they're not the cleanest proof mm-hmm. texts to possibly use. Um, and so you can read it, you can go, okay, does that mean that women should be elders or shouldn't be elders. I mean, women don't teach. So I mean, women can only teach in certain settings. There's a lot to be parsed out and we're not going to spend the podcast parsing all that out. Uh, but the encouragement is women to be, to teach or to, to be taught, to be theologically developed, that there's some difference of men and women, at least in the Ephesus church. Does that play out in all churches? That's, that's part of the more complicated problem or conversation to have. Um, but, uh, at the same time, like there's, there's, there's sort of the positive part of playing out that, that men and women both are encouraged to be humble, to be praying and, and ultimately learning who God is and that there's some authoritative teaching that does exist in the church. One thing for us to remember is that we are a year and a half into this study of the Bible and we have not yet read anything that would diminish the role or position or identity of women in the body, in God's design. And so this passage isn't doing that either. And so if you are reading it in a way that it may seem it does, I'd encourage you to step back and read it in fuller context or do some research because we know that God does not diminish or minimize women, but he has created them for a specific purpose for a specific time. And I think ultimately we're reading this in the context of this passage around praying and submitting to others. And we are to do this all out of love, understanding that when we are convinced that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all and that God really desires all to be saved, we are going to respond in praying for all people and respond in ways that are loving rather than quarrel driven, um, And so ask God yourself for a fuller understanding and conviction of what the gospel means to you, and then let that overflow into good works and prayer for all people. Yeah. And then we get to a chapter on qualifications for what uh, traditionally are overseers or deacons, uh, two different groups, um, that there's the, the, the overseer, the epistopes, and most will connect us uh, with a different word, um, the, the presbuteros, this, this word that we often see translated as elder. Even Acts 20, Paul assembles the elders and says, God has made you overseers. Uh, and so, um, there's all these words that sometimes get kind of muddled together of elder overseer bishop, uh, as some people translate it pastor. Um, and so th- it makes it that much more muddy, but here it's the word overseer. Um, and, and there's all these qualifications and the qualifications are fascinating because essentially there's, there's so much qualification that's related to more character. There are some, some competency 
pieces within there, but um, it's character. And, and that's, that's important because in, in a world, I mean, even to this day, you go to business world or something like that, it's so much more about competency. Um, and what causes train wrecks in churches is leaders who lack character. And um, you, some people can tolerate a, a leader that sometimes doesn't always have the greatest competency. Maybe they're not the most winsome teacher, or maybe um, they're not able to do certain things. But when their character is there, it doesn't cause like a train wreck in the ministry. And, but, but when a care, when someone is, is given into anger and domination or given into, um, adultery and not being the, the spouse, the, the husband to one wife and things like that, that has caused churches to really explode. Um, and so, um, it's important that, that sometimes we, we hold up leaders of good character, um, even more than amazing competencies. Yeah. And let's remember, as you read this, that the role of elders in a church is really significant and they take on a tremendous weight of responsibility in, in caring for the flock. So if you are not an elder, pray for your elders and thank God for the leaders in your church and do what you can to spur them on and encourage them and bless them as they lead you. And then we hear about the, the diaconos, the, the deacons, uh, and uh, it's really just the word servant, but um, it seems like there's also a more official role for, for all um for this almost office of servant uh, and um, and they have some more character expectations as well a little bit of competency as well that they're able to to, to handle the word in good faith but um, and if you're reading the ESV it suddenly says their wives and stuff like that this is where an area like that I think is maybe not the right translation. And so there's certainly debates on that, but um, I tend to fall in the camp that um, because the word women and wives is the same word. So it makes it that much more complicated. And so um, it seems odd that um, with deacons, suddenly you would have higher qualifications uh, than elders. The elders, there's no word about what their wives need to be like or anything like that. But suddenly with deacons, well, we need, we need expectations of your wives. That just feels like an odd and clunky way to, to, to lay out qualifications to me as opposed to saying, okay, um, there's women because we find out, Hey, if you're, if you're a man, you should only have one wife. If you're a woman, Hey, don't, don't give in the gossip and things like that. And so, um, I tend to fall in the camp that women can be deacons as well. And, and in our modern day, and at least in our church, um, I would argue that uh, like our staff kind of function as deacons. Uh, some some churches have official offices for deacons as well, but um, in a lot of ways they become sort of the the executioners of ministry. Those that um, do a lot of maybe the more organizational pieces of what ministry looks like in our higher tier leaders within the church. Yeah. And remember that those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith. And so your faith grows as you serve. Uh, so keep serving. And then Paul writes, Hey, I wish I could be with you, but since I can't yet, here's a letter. And I really want you to know how to conduct yourselves in, in God's household. I want you to know how to do that and, and how you're conducting yourself. Like there's some mystery to it, but it's the mystery of obedience, of piety. Like why do we act differently? Because Jesus came, lived and fleshed, died, proclaimed this being proclaimed everywhere. People are coming to faith. Like that's why we act differently. That's the mystery of our obedience and our piety. Yeah, I really love this idea of it being a mystery. You know, we have this work as a church to share the gospel of Christ, but we still get to lean into the fact that it is this amazing mystery of godliness, the way God works in the spirit. We see the effects of it, but we don't see all of it. We're not going to get it all, but that's where faith comes in as well. 
And then Paul gives a warning to Timothy that there's going to be those who come in with sort of this maybe aesthetic Gnostic stuff. We covered that a little bit before um, with Colossians, but they come in and they're going to deny all the stuff that like your body can enjoy and, and anything that satisfies any sort of physical or those things are bad and wicked. But, but he's encouraging Timothy, like, don't believe their lies. Like God created all things. And so receive the things with Thanksgiving. Like that's the right way to handle good gifts in this physical world. There's something wrong with, with food and things like that. But do those things with thankfulness saying like, it's like, God, thanks for making this taste so good. And thanks for providing it for me and, and blessing me with this food. And, and God, I'm thankful for that and, and recognize your creator in the process. Yeah. It's so easy for us to lean toward legalism or things that are right and things that are wrong because we can control them. But God here is reminding us that most things are not innately bad or good, but we are to receive God's gift with thanksgiving and enjoy them in worship. And it needs to be done by faith. And then we get sort of, we start getting into some quick hits from uh, instruction here. So uh, basically the instruction, Timothy, like share the word, share good doctrine with your brothers and sisters, train in these things. And he starts talking about exercise. He's like, look, you know how exercise, look, it benefits the physical body, but train your spiritual soul. Like there's a forever world. There's an eternal thing. That's not just this physical temporary body and stuff like that. Like there's, there's something greater. And Paul's like, I'm, I'm banking on, I'm banking on the eternal thing. Like that's worth being disciplined for. Um, and Paul's really encouraging Timothy to pass this along. Like, and, and he knows sort of Timothy, maybe, maybe timid. There's going to be people who look down on him maybe for his age. And Paul encourages this timid kind of young man. It's like, remember Timothy, like we laid hands on you. Like you were ordained for this very work by us. Like, that, 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 that God has done for you. And so live this out, teach the scriptures, immerse yourself in those things. And like the church is going to mature in the process. It's going to be, it's going to be good for everyone for you to step into your calling. One of the themes I've seen in first Timothy and that I saw a lot in James or that we've seen in Hebrews is this idea of perseverance and endurance. And Paul drives it home here too. And which is why we keep coming back to this necessity of being in scripture and being in a faith community. This is how we can do the hard work of serving God faithfully and remain faithful when we are doing it with others and we are grounded in his living and active word. And speaking of Timothy's youth, Paul's like, all right, well, remember that the young people in your church, like you still need to show honor and, and particularly still in a culture that's probably honor and shame, like show honor to, to the older people in your church. Like they are a father or a mother to you. Be respectful to them. And remember that you have a responsibility for widows. And there's some instructions there that feel a little odd or clunky. Um, but, but remember we have so much old Testament law around what to do with widows, how families take care of widows, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, I think Paul's instruction is like, look, we are as a church, a household of God, but that, that doesn't mean you, neglect your also your actual maybe bloodline household responsibilities and and so take care of those and maybe in your family that that might be a widow but if not we still have the household of god to, to work on but don't just rely on that still step into the responsibilities that you have and the structures to call people out for sin that you don't appoint people could quickly for leadership, all really helpful things uh, that, that are important. And lastly, the, the instructions around bond servants that, that are to show honor to, to the owner, the, the one, the, the master, um, even if they're a brother in Christ, like I understand your family, your brothers or brother and sister, but still interact with them in a way that's honorable. Yeah, it's interesting to, or I guess we just see here again, the, the personal nature of this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy and giving him practicals for running a church. 
and a church he planted in Ephesus. And so don't forget, as we read First Timothy, we also have a context of the book of Ephesians or the planting of the church in Ephesus to look at this through. So Proverbs 8, more talk on wisdom. Yeah, lots of wisdom. So wisdom is better than wealth. And wisdom looks like hating evil and fearing God. And you find life when you find wisdom. Yeah, it's very personified. It's almost like mm-hmm. walking around calling people to, to have an yeah. understanding of wisdom. And um, and wisdom loves those who seek her. And it's worth more than riches. It's, it's, it's a great it's a great text on particularly wisdom as this personified thing. Mm-hmm. So next week, what are we looking for? So in Ezekiel, we're going to continue to enter into the cycle of judgment. So just pay attention to what patterns of sin God is punishing. There's really large sections. So see if you can summarize those sections in one sentence or so to give you a better idea of what you're reading in Ezekiel. And in the New Testament, I would just encourage you to compare and contrast Titus and First Timothy. They're both kind of letters to people who are leading churches and planting churches. And so how does it help form your perspective on church operations based on city and context as well. Yeah, and so we're going to get into what is some of the most graphic sections of Ezekiel, I would argue. Um, and and there's a reason. Uh, some of the ancient rabbinic camps, like the younger people weren't actually allowed to read Ezekiel, I think from some of the passages we're about to read. But why? Why Why does God or why does Ezekiel use such strong language? What do you think the intended purpose would be from, from, from going that direction? Uh, and then New Testament. It's interesting in Timothy, we see Paul constantly give like encouragement and, and almost the expectation that there's some timidity in, in Timothy. But as we read Titus, we're going to see Paul, Paul just have this full expectation that Titus can just handle what is a pretty tough crowd in the Cretans. And, and so you have Ephesus, the city of like a half a million to a million, huge city and Crete, this very barely inhabited Island at the time. And yet Paul posts these guys like he does. And it seems like he, he puts this unsure, timid Timothy in Ephesus, this huge city and Titus and Crete. And in our modern day, would we follow the same strategy and what might be the lesson that Paul might, might, might even be teaching through his methods of Timothy and Titus in their respective places and how, how, Maybe it's not just the eyes, uh, but but understanding um, how God might use a, a guy like Timothy and a guy like Titus. So that's it. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Y'all.